Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. A quote from Ursula K. Le Guin. Science fiction is the continuation of the mythological tradition. It's the modern version of the ancient myths. It's the same thing, but it's set in the future or in outer space, and it's concerned with the impact of technology on people. Welcome to Episode 2 of Gods, Humans, and Robots. Now, in the last episode, my guest and friend Kaylee, he made a pretty interesting connection between science fiction and mythology that I'd like to explore more in this podcast. So we had been talking about different ways in which robots or artificial intelligence have been imagined in science fiction. Imaginations like the Terminator, like Data in Star Trek, like Her and the film of the same name cyborgs, putting the technology back, not using it, like in Dune, and some other examples. So I'll get into those. So he suggested that there could be an equivalent in humans' relationship with the gods in mythology, as with robots' relationship with humans. So robots being the creation of the humans, humans being the creation of gods, and seeing some of the same kinds of stories, the same story elements, play out in those two sets of relationships. One being science fiction, you know, human-created contemporary stories, and one being in mythology, predating the invention of robots and artificial intelligence and such. So idea being that there's only so many stories you could say, or another way to say it is that there's story elements. Just like we have periodic table of elements, you might say we have elements of story that combine in different ways. There's themes that run through life. There's archetypes. There's patterns that show up again and again in different times, and that perhaps the times we live in are not as different from ancient times as we think, and perhaps the ways that we're thinking and imagining now are not so different from ancient imaginings, mythic imaginings. So I'm going to get into these one by one and give some examples, done a little bit of research here. And if you'd like to follow along, you can. I'll put the mind map that I'm working from 
in the show notes, so you can have a look at that if you if you want. And if you have any thoughts of your own when you're listening to this, then uh, do feel free. I think probably Instagram's the best place at this point. Link in the show notes, so you can come in there. And if you have any examples of your own from science fiction, from mythology, that you'd like to share, you're more than welcome to get some conversation going there. Right, so science fiction imaginings. We could start with the imagination of a cyborg. So a cyborg is a being where the organic has been mixed with the technical, the technology. That's somebody who still has flesh, but they're mixed with technology intimately, like it's very connected. So there's many examples of this. There's examples where it's unusual in the story that the one who is a cyborg is an exception to the role, like in Robocop, where you know there's not that many cyborgs, but this new process comes about and the main character gets mixed with the technology. And there's also stories where it's very common, like Alita Battle Angel came out recently, the film where many of the people have some sort of implants or cybernetic enhancements, weapons, and so on, or ghost in the shell set in the future where most people have it. So this is where the technology and the human are mixed, that it becomes something to enhance the senses, the strength, the mental capacity of the humans. And you could sort of say that this is a bit what technology's doing now. We're not merged with it yet, although there's talk of that because it's in the science fiction imaginings not physically merged with it, but as we become more dependent on the enhanced information that comes through phones, for example, we become kind of like cyborgs. So what about a mythic equivalent to this? Well, if in the science fiction we've got the robots or the technology and then the humans, and the myth we have the humans and then the gods, the gods being the creators of the humans, then what's a mix of the two, of the human and a god, is a demigod. So in Greek mythology, for example, there's many times, you know, Zeus is messing around and had a kid with a lovely human lady. And sometimes the kid will just turn out to be human and just live and die, have some qualities of the gods. But sometimes, like in the example of Hercules, which we'll get to a little later as well, then He's a demigod, in some ways more powerful than some of the gods, but with attributes of humans. So the demigod is this mix between a human and a god, equivalent in science fiction to the technology and a human. In Indian mythology, you have devas, which can be translated as demigods. It's a similar but different kind of setup than the Olympians and the humans in the Greek mythology or in the Norse mythology, you have some beings that are created by God, by the central divinity, and that these created beings have extraordinary powers, so they could be considered devas, and their offspring may or may not have those powers, because these powers are given to them because of their role, because of their station and their responsibility. But you do have examples of 
the same kind of thing in Indian mythology as well, like Karna, for example, who was, turned out to be one of the brothers of the Pandavas, but they didn't know that at the time, in the Mahabharata. And he's the son of the god Surya and the mortal woman Kunti. And he had all kinds of amazing powers, one of the greatest warriors in that story, and yet he wasn't fully godlike. So sometimes this demigod status is genetic, where a person has one divine parent and one human parent, and sometimes it's imparted, where the person has some responsibilities, and that those higher up the divine ladder give them these powers. So then there's the more-than-you-bargained-for category, where the technology is more than the creators bargained for. So in science fiction, this shows up quite a bit. One example is iRobot, where the robot kills the human creator because it thinks that this will protect humanity. So this is where the rules are not technically broken that the robot's given, but that they take it to this extreme. Like Jai gave the example in the last episode of, you know, a robot that's designed to make stamps no matter what. And so they're making these stamps, they're making these stamps, and then run out of material and, oh, use the humans to make stamps, 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 like that. So, you know, kind of silly, but this is uh, where we get more than we bargained for. Now, really, our own technology is often like this. You know, we make the combustion engine. Sounds great. We can move really fast. Next thing you know, we've got pollution all over the world. Make plastic. Oh, that's great. Lasts a long time. We can hold things in. You know, rivers, oceans have all this plastic in them. Uh, We make things that accelerate how quickly we can accomplish daily tasks. And somehow or another, even though we're saving so much time, we seem to be in a bigger rush than ever. So a lot of our technology is really like this, this more than we bargained for. Now, how does it show up in myth? Kaylee gave the example last episode of the jinn or the genie, who fulfills the human desires, but it often turns out to be harmful for the human. And we see this in myth and folklore as well. Like Aladdin, he rubs the lamp and he gets his wishes and he becomes this amazingly wealthy prince. But then it turns out that it's not what he bargained for, that his nature's changing, that he's thinking these things will bring him happiness, but that they don't. And, you know, he comes back to a simpler state of mind. There's another story in the Thousand and One Nights, or Arabian Nights, called The Fisherman and the Genie, where a fisherman catches a bottle in his net, and he rubs it, and he gets these wishes, and he becomes wealthy and has a beautiful woman for his wife and does all the things and he eventually realizes also that his nature has been changed and he's finding himself becoming arrogant and cruel and in the end he wishes to return to being a simple fisherman. So pretty interesting to think of that in terms of our relationship with our technology now as well. You think of people who give up their smartphone because all the capacities that it gives them have a cost. People who give up their cars. You know, I talked to a few people lately who said that, oh, when I didn't have a car, I had more time. You know, it took longer to get places, but somehow I felt I had more time. 
Also with phones, they do things very quickly. Somehow it feels like less time. Things are more compressed. So we are really in a situation like that where our own creations or our own wishes are giving us more than we bargained for. Taking things from our lives that we might have taken for granted when we're dreaming about you know, convenience and not working as hard and all the things and these labor-saving devices help us so much in that way. But what's lost? What's lost? All right, so moving on to another science fiction apparition of robots and artificial technology is we have the helper. So this is where it didn't go wrong. You know, this is where the technology is helping, even if the technology is sentient, still the technology is helping humans. It hasn't gone terribly wrong. So a lot of examples of this as well. Her, the film Her, I mentioned that in the last episode, where you've got this artificial intelligent being who the main character, main human character falls in love with, and she's speaking with everybody at the same time. She's kind of like Siri, but vaster. You've got kind of the AI dog, where you've got a dog level of intelligence in the robot, and you know they might just be a companion. They might be cleaning up around the house, something like that. You've also got like Terminator 2. You know, if Terminator 1 is the robot goes rogue, Terminator 2, there's also a rogue robot, but the robot from the first movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger robot, he's helping. So this is where this technology that's created, this AI is helping. Data in Star Trek and also... In Star Trek Discovery, the ship is an artificial intelligence. This is interesting because these become characters. You know, they have some quandaries, they have some arcs of moving through different learning lessons. You know, the ship in Discovery has emotions. Data wanted emotions. Sometimes he got emotions for a small period of time. And these are kind of like, yeah, superheroes where they have these abilities that humans don't have, but they're using them in the service of humans. So they haven't gone rogue. So coming back to mythology, if these superhero AI beings, they're creations of humans, but they have these capacities that humans don't have, uh, where might we see that in mythology? For example, Hercules. So Hercules is the son of Zeus and Alcamini, and he has some capacities that the gods don't have. He's stronger than some of the gods, even though he's a demigod. He's born of a god and a mortal. And he completed these 12 labors, which were considered to be impossible, that many of the gods couldn't have done. But he did it within the will of the gods. He didn't rebel against the gods or usurp them. Uh, Also with Halper, You've got Pygmalion and Galagia. So in Greek mythology, Pygmalion was a sculptor, and he was such a good sculptor that he created a statue of a woman in marble that was so beautiful that he fell in love with the statue. And he was pining that this statue should become a living woman. Of course, it's just a statue. What can he do? What can he do? So he prays to the goddess 
Aphrodite in a very piteous and heartfelt way, and she relents and brings the statue to life. And happily ever after, the statue, who is Galagia, falls in love with Pygmalion, and they have kids and they live happily ever after. So that's where he created this being, with the help of the gods, and fell in love. They became husband and wife, which is interesting because Often the family relationship you would think of is parent and child because the human comes first and then comes the robot or the creation. Whereas in this, they became husband and wife. They fell in love with each other. All right, another kind of AI that you have in science fiction, I call it put it back, which is where there's the possibility for this powerful technology and people decide not to go ahead with it. People think, oh, it's too dangerous. We're not going to do it. So in Dune, they did that. They decided not to have computers, not to use computers. So instead, they developed these incredible mental abilities of memory and such for wayfaring their way through outer space and so on. And also in Isaac Asimov's foundation, they also decided not to have artificial intelligence. It's too dangerous. So it's against the law. Now, where does this show up in mythology? Well, a couple places I found in my research are Cronus and the Olympians. So Cronus is the king of the Titans and he was told by an oracle that one of his kids would overthrow him. So what to do? He eats all his kids as soon as they're born, one after another. Oh, had a kid. Got to eat that kid. Got to overthrow me someday. So get rid of that problem. But his wife, Rhea, was able to save Zeus by instead substituting him for a rock. So he, she gave her husband a stone. Oh, here's the baby. That was swallowed by Cronus, and Zeus came out and was eventually did overthrow Cronus. And he busted out all his swallowed brothers and sisters, and destiny was served despite the will of Cronus. So what did Cronus try to do? He tried to put it back. He's the creator in that example, and his creation is going to turn against him. It's prophesized. That's the danger. So he attempts to destroy his creation. Also interesting to notice that there's no humans in that story. In that story, the Olympian gods are in the place of the created, and the Titan are in the place of the creator. Cronus was not successful. Another example of not being successful is none other than Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve, things are going well, they're the created beings, they're obedient to their creator, God, until they eat the apple, which is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, as it's often said. This is knowledge that is not meant to be had. It is the will of the creator that this knowledge should not be available, and that Adam and Eve should remain in the garden peaceful and taken care of, but also not independent in any way. 
not making their own choices, having their own consequences. But, like it with the example of Cronus, fate, you might say, although there's no prophecy in Adam and Eve, some say it's sort of inevitable. I mean, you know, you set up a story like that. Here you go. You can do everything here, but don't eat that apple. Why keep the apple in there? I mean, from a story point of view, of course they're going to eat the apple. <laughs> there's no story if they don't eat the apple and something doesn't go wrong. Things are set up in stories like that all the time. You can go in any room in this castle, but don't go in this room. So what's going to happen? Definitely going to go into that room. So those are really attempts to put it back in the myth. There's probably examples of putting it back as well. But, you know, nature of a good story is something has to go wrong. So there are attempts to put it back. Another example from science fiction, I just call it the slave. So, you know, we said last episode that the word robot comes from a Czech word connected with forced labor. So these are beings who are meant to do the work we don't want to do. So that could be physical work, or it could be intellectual work, organizing events on an office planner, filling out spreadsheets, coding, making legal agreements, resumes, you name it. You know, the idea is that we humans, we can be freed up for more interesting things, and that those robots at AI should do our drudge work. So basically slave, robot, slave, forced labor. And then within that, I see two main categories which is escaped slave and unescaped slave. So escaped slave is really one of the most common tropes in science fiction in regard to robots and AI. You've got Terminator, certainly, you know, designed to be the best military weapon and, oh damn, got away. You've got in Star Trek, later on, Star Trek Picard, you'll see there's a history of an android rebellion where the androids turned against their creators. You've got HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey. You've got all those squid-like robots in The Matrix who are using humans for electricity. Might not be the most efficient source of electricity, but, you know, that's what they're doing. So they turn against their creator. They turn the tables. And this is pretty interesting. I mean, if you look at this trope connected with history of colonialism and enslavement and such, you can understand why this fear is there in the culture. Because empire, colonial culture, there's a lot of enslaving going on, either directly, like with the African Atlantic slave trade, or indirectly with economic slavery. Uh, putting people in debt. So there's definitely going to be the fear that, oh, what if these slaves rebel? And of course, human slaves did rebel, often, and do. All right, and how about unescaped slave? So this is pretty much the status quo in a lot of mythologies. So, you know, in Greek mythology, you got to be making sacrifices to the gods to appease them. In India as well, there's sacrifices to the gods. Uh, Mesopotamian mythology, Egyptian mythology, you often see this idea of people needing to appease the gods. Those androids in Star Trek, Star Wars, are they slaves? They're definitely subjugated to the humans, but they don't seem to mind it like C-3PO, R2-D2, definitely lower down on the chain of command than humans. 
But then you've got a film like Blade Runner, where the main character, at least in the second newer Blade Runner, is a replicant, is a AI being, and who is definitely subjugated by humans, and whom we empathize with. And that's an interesting thing in story, is that depending on the framing of the story, we're asked to empathize with this one or with this one. So, you know, in Terminator, we're empathizing with the humans because this big bad robot is after them. But in Blade Runner, we're empathizing with the robot because the humans are treating him like a second-class citizen. He's basically a slave with his own apartment and a certain degree of freedom. But who's good, who's bad, isn't really the main thing. It's more about who we're asked to empathize with. And that can flip from story to story. Sometimes the gods are seen as pretty temperamental, and so the humans are like, kind of like living in a house with a powerful but crazy dad, something like that, or an immature person who's very powerful who can be just set off at any time because they're so vain and never really grew up. Sometimes you see that, where the humans are subjected to gods who don't have the wisdom that you'd kind of expect gods to have. Like a lot of the Greek myths, the gods are, you know, kind of acting like lusty, vain, power-hungry <laughs> narcissists in a way. So you see that a lot, that unescaped slave. As between robots and humans, so between humans and gods. So what's common to all these examples if we zoom out and consider all these thought forms, all these myths, these stories, what do they all have in common in regards to a view of life? So one thing we can see is that there is hierarchy in these systems. You know, I've been talking about the robots being subjugated by the humans, the humans being subjugated by the gods. So we're really seeing, like rungs on a ladder, we're seeing this hierarchy of control, of power. And sometimes it's flipped, you know, the robot started out at the bottom and then turned the tables and moved up the power ladder, or sometimes the human flips it and moves up the power ladder and, you know, topples a god, or or there's a mix between levels of power, like where a robot and a human are merged, or a human and a god have a child, and that child is partly godly and partly human. But it is based on this idea of there being levels, levels of power, levels of influence. This is common to these thought forms. So I'd like to explore for a moment this word hierarchy, give a definition here. The word hierarchy comes from the Greek word hieros, meaning sacred, or arche, meaning rule or beginning. Together, the word hierarchy means sacred rule or sacred beginning. The word was first used in the late 16th century to refer to a system of government or organization in which people are ranked according to their status or authority. From there, it evolved to refer more generally to any system of organization or ranking 
whether in government, religion, or any other area of life. Now, this is a hot word these days, and some want to throw out hierarchy completely, and some want to show that it's always there in nature, and that it's inevitable that people will be on different levels. Someone might say, well, in nature, there's the food chain from bottom to top. There's plankton, there's fish, there's predatory fish, there's killer whales, or there's seeds in the ground, there's mice, there's owls and foxes. The eagle here in Pacific Northwest is at the top of a food chain. But is it really a food chain? Because when the eagle dies, who eats the eagle? It's the scavengers. It's the beings often at the bottom of the food chain. Oh, somebody might scavenge the eagle and then poop parts of that out. And then somebody who's lower down the food chain will eat that, eat that. So in this way, less of a food chain, perhaps more of a cycle, or you can say a web. I'll throw my own (laughs) two cents in the pile here that, uh, yes, it's true that we are different from each other, that we have different abilities in different ways, but that ranking people according to power isn't necessarily the only way that humans have done it. As I understand, more earth-based societies, traditional, truly traditional societies, there are certainly degrees of influence in the society, but they're not based as much on position as on respect. So a person, by becoming older, wouldn't necessarily get the respect of being an elder. They would have to actually come into the wisdom, the compassion, the knowledge of being an elder, and then, yes, people will regard them as an elder. Whereas the idea of occupying a post and then getting that power, that's something that really comes with civilization. And this hierarchy where you have the sacred, hieros, and arche, the rule or beginning, so the sacred rule, the sacred beginning, this could be taken in a couple of ways. In a civilizational way, or in a what we would normally use the word hierarchical way, you'll see the priests on top. You'll see the priests who are the ones who are said to embody the sacred. And it could be the pharaohs as well. It could be the kings with the divine right to rule. So they're the ones who are understood to be sacred. And this can be a kind of tyranny, where they claim this title of sacred in order to tell people what to do, in order to have the power. How often is it there in religious arguments that, oh, God's on my side? No, no, God's on my side. Two armies going to battle, each one saying, God will prevail, that means I'm going to prevail. So claiming that authority of the sacred is easy to do, but to truly have the authority or capacity to author or to co-create with the sacred is something much deeper and it doesn't necessarily come with political military power over others. Now we could look at this word hierarchy, inspired by Stephen Jenkinson on this one, as not necessarily being rule over in a political or military sense, but that the sacred is at the heart. The sacred is the beginning. And of course, the sacred is within each of us and within every tree and blade of grass and within 
the air around us. So the sense of the sacred being primary and everything being related with that and seeing the world in that way is another way to understand the word hierarchy, which is in many ways the opposite of how it's usually understood and used. So I want to finish with perhaps the most interesting kind, which in our last episode we called Tree AI. And these days, where apocalyptic visions are a dime a dozen and it takes some real work of imagination to go beyond that, this may be one of the most relevant. So Tree AI is basically artificial intelligence which helps us to be in better relationship with nature. So take a step back from artificial intelligence and just think of technology that helps us be in better relationship with nature. So this could include different kinds of sensors so that we can understand the health of plants. It might include drone footage of forests so we can understand where there's illegal deforestation going on, and then computers compiling that footage into maps. Could be communication networks that allow people to organize to resist resource extraction or to find ways to meet their needs which don't deteriorate nature around them. So it can be easy to get stuck in one story or another, and that's part of why I think it's helpful to look at the different possible stories that are there about our relationship with AI and really about our relationship with technology as a whole. I certainly get stuck in a very uh, critical way of thinking about technology, and some people get kind of stuck in an optimistic way of thinking about it. So, you know, there's different glasses we can put on, different lenses we can look at it, and it's not that one is the way or that wins out over the others, but they're all different thought exercises or different perspectives that can help us have a more rounded understanding of the situation we're in, a more rounded understanding of the potential relationships, positive, negative, and mixes of that and other things as well that we might have with technology. So in science fiction, in regards to tree AI, or very helpful AI, one example would be The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. And in that book, there's a planet-sized artificial intelligence computer that's trying to answer the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, and that this would help humans to finally get it and be at peace and be in touch with everything in a proper way. And it's a humor book, so it doesn't quite work out, but that's the idea. <laughs> and also another couple more recent examples, uh, The Wind-Up Girl, where there's an AI known as Wind-Up that's created to help humans connect with nature by controlling genetically modified organisms. The Wind-Up helps to bring back extinct species and helps to preserve endangered species and also restores the balance of the ecosystems so that this... AI can be a way of being aware of what's happening, just like we have so much scientific information now about the ice caps, about the oceans, the acidity of the oceans, about the 
what our air contains, how much CO2, how much methane, how much oxygen. These AI systems can help us to create models where we understand the situation with the world and hopefully with that, that we can be better stewards and we can can act well on that information. Another example is The Age of Spiritual Machines by Ray Kurzweil. This novel describes a future in which advanced artificial intelligence is used to help humans connect with nature in a more intimate way by creating virtual reality simulations of nature that are indistinguishable from the real thing. The novel also describes how artificial intelligence will help humans to understand and control nature in a more profound way. This AI can help us to run different simulations without actually doing it, getting a sense of how things will play out. You know, if we try to reforest this area or do this ecological restoration here, what will happen over the course of 100 years, 200 years? Of course, you can't know for sure. A model is just based on the information available to it. But we can get a sense, a better sense, of what will be the result of our actions through this artificial intelligence. And so if you think about it, what is it through this awareness of the life around us, of the interconnection of things, of how systems affect each other, of the current situation with the ocean, with the air, with this forest, with the different creatures, with this sensory awareness or with our extended senses of technology, this awareness of the world, our place in it, how we affect things, this potentially can be brought about through technology. If we look mythically, what might this correspond to? In my mind, it's some form of self-realization. That is to say, a sense of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh said. A sense of the interconnection of things. A sense of oneself as being interwoven with this web of life. Now in myth, or in spirituality, you could say, this is generally not brought about by technology, not by technology we create, you might say by the technology of our bodies or our minds, that is to say, the capacities that we have in us from the beginning of our lives, the capacity to reach out with, you could say, spiritual empathy and relate with the different creatures of the world, with the humans, with the different cultures and the different thought forms, not to understand them or encapsulate them or control them, but to have a sense of our connection with them and to see beneath the shells of anger, ignorance, bigotry, and so on, and to see the hearts of beings underneath this soul of the beings in the world. So it seems to me that the mythic or spiritual equivalent of this tree AI is really what's talked about as a mature state in many spiritual paths in the world. What it means to be enlightened or self-realized varies from tradition to tradition, individual to individual. But these are some of the common threads. Wishing all beings well, wishing to be in the best possible relationship with all beings, 
or perhaps having a sense of being in that relationship, not bound by the politics and everything of our current day, but in some sense outside of time, being in the best, deepest, most loving relationship with all beings in every moment. And depending on the tradition that you're in, there may be certain individuals you consider have attained that state. For some it might be Guru Nanak or others in his lineage. For some it might be descendants in the lineage of Lord Shiva, Lord Brahma, or elders in the past who are considered to have been very aware, wise beings. And there's a crossover there between myth and history, which is interesting. The very ancient times, they're kind of there in myth, whereas the more recent times, it merges into history, but there's some overlaying of myth on it. Let's end with a quote. As Tolkien says, The tales of Middle-earth are deeply rooted in history, and its history is in turn deeply rooted in the stories that have come down to us from the ancient world. The stories of the past and the deeds of great men and women live on long after they have passed from the world, and they become the stuff of legend and myth. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part... I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donohue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.